and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso, and this episode is all about innovation in emerging markets. Here's my chat with Alex Lazaro, a global VC analyst and author of the book Out Innovate. We talked about why emerging markets took over Silicon Valley in tech innovation, why being a camel startup is sometimes better than being a unicorn startup, and what it means to be a disruptor and a creator in emerging markets. Innovation has globalized, but these aren't just big businesses, these are the biggest businesses. The biggest neobank in the world is from Brazil. The biggest robotic process automation company is from Romania. Um, the biggest edtech in the world is from India. Um, the biggest social network and ride-sharing company and et cetera, et cetera, is from China. And so it isn't just that innovation is globalized, but actually the biggest companies and more and more some of the biggest inspirations and new models are coming from anywhere and scaling everywhere. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and you can also help me to keep emerging markets today free from ads and paywall by simply donating via PayPal or directly in the website. And don't forget to follow this podcast in your favorite podcast platform. Hi, Alex. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's very more. It's very early in the morning for you, isn't it? In San Francisco, um, eight, eight o'clock in the morning. So uh, I have I have a newborn. So uh, so I've I've been up for ages already. Welcome to Emerging Markets today. I hope you have your coffee there. Um, here in Sweden, it's very late. In the evenings after five o'clock, so it's pretty dark right now. And I'm really glad that you made time to come here and talk to me about emerging markets. I'm here with Alex Lazaro. He's a global venture capitalist, partner at Catape Innovation, and also author of Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, the reason I invited you here, I came across one of your articles on Medium. And also I found out you have a book about emerging markets and about innovation. It's something I'm very passionate about. I wrote a lot about tech innovation in emerging markets. So I, that's why I decided to invite you here. We can talk more about your book later on. But uh, we just dive in into emerging markets, into innovation. This episode will be centered around innovation. So what's been happening in emerging markets? You asked me a broad question. I'll give you a, a broad answer, but I'll tell you why I'm excited about the state of innovation um, outside Silicon Valley in, in emerging markets. Um, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been wrong to say all the action was in Silicon Valley. Um, in the early 2000s, less than four ecosystems ever created a billion-dollar business. Um, in 2021, 91 startup ecosystems have created a billion-dollar business. Innovation has globalized. But these aren't just big businesses. These are the biggest businesses. The biggest neobank in the world is from Brazil. The biggest robotic process automation company is from Romania. Um, the biggest ed tech in the world is from India. Um, the biggest social network and ride-sharing company and et cetera, et cetera, is from China. 
And so it isn't just that innovation is globalized, but actually the biggest companies and more and more some of the biggest inspirations and new models are coming from anywhere and scaling everywhere. And so that's one, the background of why I think it's terrifically exciting. And two, um, I, I invest in, in technology companies by day. I write about them. Um, I teach about it uh, outside of work. And I, I think it's one, it's this incredible driver of digital transformation, but it's also an incredible driver of impact. A lot of these businesses are touching the mass market, are creating new products, new services, new industries for their ecosystems. And so one of the things that I think is terrifically exciting is that we're seeing more and more innovation in some really critical sectors of financial services and um, education and healthcare and others. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of this, uh, I'm sure, later. But, but I think that's, that's what's exciting is that we're seeing record numbers of capital enter emerging markets at this exact moment. And we're seeing some really, really exciting proof points and exits uh, that are coming out, uh, coming out very recently. And at the date of this recording, right, New Bank's IPO um, uh, was very recently, and it's the biggest fintech exit in Latam and the biggest neobank in the world. And, and, and so I think we're at this really unique moment uh, that, that, that I think we're seeing the momentum in the right side. So you mentioned about fintech, about ride sharing, but I want to dig deeper what innovation really means. What does it mean to be a disruptor or a creator in emerging markets? Um, so I, I would say in, 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 in my book, I use this framing of, of creators versus disruptors. Um, in Silicon Valley, I think the notion is you're either disrupting or you are being disrupted. Uh, and that guides the problems that people solve and, 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 and trying to make efficient processes more efficient with software or what have you. In many emerging markets, what I've observed is the biggest and best businesses are taking a lens of being a creator. They're creating industries. Um, if you look at the big business, I, I, I did a survey, for instance, of, uh, um, of of some of the biggest businesses in emerging markets and, and, and in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, less than uh, 20% of businesses were in these kind of critical industries like fintech, healthcare, et cetera, targeted the mass market. This was the mass market approach. In emerging markets, those numbers are flipped. In sub-Saharan Africa, it was over 70% in these kind of mass market targeted critical industry businesses. And that's also where we're seeing the outcome. So I, if you ask me where the hotspots are, I think is where entrepreneurs are creating industries. And specifically, one of the ones and the big story for 2021 was fintech, in my opinion. Um, what we saw was one, 100%, right? Like a massive increase in the amount of funding. Um, I, ju I just wrote a, a blog about it, um, about top 20, uh, top 10 predictions for 2022. And, and funding for fintech has skyrocketed, exits for fintech have skyrocketed. Um, but I think one of the things that's underappreciated about the story of fintech is that it's actually become the unicorn, the unicorn story in emerging markets. The unicorn story in many emerging markets is synonymous to the fintech story. Let me give you one example, which is uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. In Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, two years ago, there had been exactly one unicorn. Um, and, uh, and that company won public. Jumia, depending on how you count, maybe maybe maybe, maybe you could add a, a, a second company to that list. Um, uh, Jumia, a big e-commerce company, and, and it went public. Um, last year, uh, six new unicorns were minted in Sub-Saharan Africa, and and all driven by fintech, right? So fintech was the unicorn story in many emerging markets. In Latam, uh, an, an area I'm spending a lot of time, and also a really big driver of 
uh, the biggest companies and the fastest scaling. And the reason is, by the way, just coming back to this creator creator point, is um, there's about 1.5 billion people globally, many of whom in emerging markets that have no access to financial products or services. And add another 1.5 to 2 billion, depending how you count, uh, people that are underserved. It's a, it's a prop. Um, um, a uh, 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 customer segment that is has been historically massively underserved, um, spending way too much on cost of credit, uh, insufficient options, etc. And all of a sudden, with technology, can really decrease the cost of serve and really, really target customers in unique ways. And and and, and what we're seeing is some really exciting pickup and resonance around that idea. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I totally agree. I I want to know a little bit more about fintech, but. On the innovation side, I just had someone in the previous episode talking about funding for fintech companies, but I want to dig deeper into the innovation side. And so what are these companies, these fintech companies doing differently in Latin America? How are they reaching their customers? Do they have new ways to reach the customers? What's been happening there? Yeah, well, maybe I'll I'll just give you three examples of areas that I'm spending a lot of time in that I think are really interesting. Um, one is new ways to reach customers. I believe that for fintechs to work, you need one of the three, I'll call it the three Ds, but distribution, um, data advantage, or a delight advantage. You need to be able to want one of the three things really well, and hopefully two, and a gold star if you get all three. Um, and uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is we're seeing... Uh, startups come with really unique distribution advantages to reach folks. And um, I've written a bunch, for instance, around embedded financial services, where instead of going to the bank for your financial product, you might go to a brand or a place you trust, and that would be where you'd access products or services. Um, we're investors in a company, for instance, in uh, in LATAM called Zeppelin, and they've created a workflow tool for customers to visualize where all their invoices are going. Um, to, to work with the government, the government API system uh, that, that 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 looks at that, and then from there you can actually get financing. So it's actually um, it's not purely embedded uh, in, in the traditional way, but it's actually at the point at which you need it, and, and that's really powerful. Um, so I think we're going to see more in kind of these new distribution plays, uh, and 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 in Zeppelin's case, also a data advantage as well. So I think that's I think that's powerful. I think the second thing that I'm really interested in is um, new product categories, new ways of thinking of making products that scale down market or become more bite-sized. And by the way, that 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 also ties to the embedded question. So for instance, parametric insurance, um, and particularly parametric with weather and things like that, where it could be a very simple on-off. Either the event happens or the event didn't happen. Um, and then you can target, you can target from there. Um, so I think that's I think that's becoming very interesting for me. And I think we're going to see some really exciting innovation. And the third area is around uh, small businesses and small business enablement, um, where uh, I've been seeing a lot, you know, for instance, one of the last investments um, that I had the fortune of working on and investing in is a company called Zen Business here in the US. They're in Austin, Texas. Um, and they create a single pane of glass for small businesses to start, run and grow their business. So they help with LSE formation because the they know what your social security number is and where you live and what your business does. With one click, you can uh, open up a bank account or create a website and do, do all these other things. We're going to see that model. Imagine a Shopify for the rest of us proliferate all over the world. Um, and we're seeing different models, by the way, born in emerging markets to really tie to the 
the the true bottom of the pyramid B2B segment. And, and one example is Udon in India, which is really helps the very, very small businesses um, access inventory, manage prices, but also reach and uh, access financial services. That model is being replicated in a bunch of different other places around the world. Um, so the, that, that gives you a little bit of a sampling of some of the things that I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on and I'm, I'm pretty passionate about globally and, and, and trends that I think will will manifest themselves in the couple next couple of years. Yes, yes, definitely. These three points are very interesting. And you mentioned about embedded finance. No, those companies that are not uh, native financial companies like a bank, but they do offer financial services. So do you see this turning out to be a trend in Latin America? It, it is. And this is, you know, when I, when I talked about embedded financial services, this is really what I'm talking about, which is it used to be that you went to your insurance company to get an insurance product and you went to your bank to get a checking product. Um, and now I think we're seeing a shift enabled by fintech uh, to actually engage with the brands you trust and the places where you're engaging to get more tailored, specific financial products and things like that. So Zen Business, which I alluded to a second ago, is a good example, right? They are a company formation business, but because of everything that they do, they can also offer a bank account and billing infrastructure and all of those things. Um, and we're seeing this across a bunch of different sectors. One, we're seeing players do financial products to catalyze their ecosystem, um, and so one example I think is interesting, Shopify and Amazon that provide financing to their merchants. They have a unique, coming back to the three Ds, a unique data advantage because they know all of the transactions and a distribution advantage because they're already working with those merchants that they can provide capital at the right time at the right place. So we're seeing those kind of things. And, and that's on the lending side. Um, you mentioned the bank account. Um, that I think is an example that looks a little bit different where um, embedded financial services are allowing brands to create new revenue streams and really serve their customers. And so uh, a bank account is one way, um, offering insurance policies and things like that. I think we're going to see a bunch more. Um, and I think the thing that's important to know is that a lot of these embedded products, um, most of the time, it isn't the companies just doing it themselves. They are working in concert and in partnership with an innovator or a series of innovators to offer a bunch of different things. And that's one of the reasons, for instance, buy now, pay later, uh, which is embedded-ish, uh, is scaling all over the world or um, embedded insurance tied into the product or things like that scaling all over the world is because often these are in partnership with a fintech um, that specializes in the financial services part of the business, but that works and shares economics with uh, with the ultimate brand to really provide a, a, a unique experience for, for the customers or their ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, yeah, I think as I see, we have kind of the same vision of uh, what's happening as well. And then we, you also, we talk about in the beginning about new bank become unicorn, all these unicorns coming from Africa. But I want to just go back a little bit about why the startups became a unicorn in the first place. And you have something very interesting you mentioned in your book about a camel startup. What it makes those startups succeed in the country, in their own native country, and also makes it very difficult for companies, let's say Uber, breaking to Brazil or into China because they already have their own rideshare company or in the case of Nubank, for instance, no one can compete with Nubank at the moment. 
So what's a camo startup? Yeah. Well, so, so first of all, uh, a unicorn is technically speaking a numerical figure, right? It's a startup that's worth a billion dollars. But baked in with that is a philosophy on how you build the startup. And that philosophy all often has to do with this notion of growth at any cost, where it's okay to have unsustainable unit economics in service of growth, where it's okay uh, to burn a lot of capital in service of growth, where it's okay to have a short-term view in service of growth. And that approach works very, very well in Silicon Valley, where there's tons of capital um, and, and that model is accepted. I believe that in many startup ecosystems around the world, that approach doesn't work. And so this, the philosophy that I think the best entrepreneurs are taking is what I call this camel approach. Um, and so the, re- the reason I, I called it a camel, it's there are animals that can sprint across the desert when times are good. They can drink water uh, and more water and faster than almost anything else on the planet. So when times are good, they can really take advantage of it, but also they can survive um, in the hardest places all over the world. And uh, camel startups, in my opinion, are startups that have uh, sustainable unit economics from the get-go. They really focus on it. Two, they manage their burn. Um, they grow fast. Uh, when times are good, but they are built on a foundation of strength and resilience that they can manage through uh, currency crises or lack of capital or whatever other uh, other thing. And so they're taking this long-term approach as well. So I think that's the foundation of the best startups that I've seen um, in emerging markets. And by the way, I actually think this is uh, this is kind of the approach that startups everywhere should take. So um, I, I, I think that's the, the camel approach. Um, and I do hope that camels become, uh, call it camel corns, right? Like billion dollar businesses and many, many do, um, but they do it using this philosophy of being a camel. So, so that, that was the, the first question. And the second question you asked me was about what makes startups globalized versus regionalized. Um, and you gave the example of, of Uber and, and Nubank, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, I believe that there's certain startups that have global network effects. Think Google or Facebook, where truly... I, as someone living in the Bay Area, get more value out of it when uh, we start listing pages in Sweden or my friends in Jakarta or Sao Paulo uh, join the Facebook network, right? Um, Whereas Uber has much more regional and frankly, actually local network effects where I get more value the more drivers there are, not even in my state or my country, but literally in my neighborhood, right? Like that's where where the value accrues. And um, I think that, Uber, for instance, in their global expansion, uh, misunderstood the nature of their network effects, where um, uh, truly they're regional. And that's why in LATAM, there's 99, and in the Middle East, Kareem, and in Southeast Asia, Grab and Gojek. And by the way, the biggest ride-sharing company in the world is in China, it's Didi. Um, It's because of this um, regionalization of the network effects. And uh, New Bank's a good example, right? Like they dominated Brazil, uh, but within that, they really built a unique customer service customer segment and relationship. They've now added a bunch of other products as well. So they've horizontalized uh, across it. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that that's important to remember when building startups is what's the nature of the network effects? What's the nature of the cost structure? What are the barriers that make it easier or harder for people to come in uh, or not? And, and those things will drive whether or not we'll see a global winner, regional winners, or even uh, local local winners as well. Um, so that's that's how that's how I would think about about that side of the equation. Yeah, yeah, totally. Also, the cultural differences. I'm from Brazil originally, and I really admire New Bank's approach in their marketing. They're always being very approachable. Local knowledge is key, definitely. 
So yeah, so now it's time for you to talk about your book, How to Innovate. I really like the title of it, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So how did, how did the idea of the book come about? Um, so by day, I'm a venture capitalist. I invest all over the world. Um, outside of work, I've been teaching entrepreneurship uh, and I, with MBA students at the Middlebury Institute. And in both those cases, I was getting really frustrated that um, innovation is globalized, and yet all of our knowledge on how to build startups and how to scale them was still incredibly centered in Silicon Valley or ecosystems like Silicon Valley. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs around the world, and I saw it firsthand, were doing it a different way. And no one was telling their stories. And so I decided I would. I interviewed about 200 founders, mostly folks leading the biggest um, and the best startups around the world. Um, and I wanted to capture their set of best practices. And I think taken together, they don't just challenge Silicon Valley's conventionalism. They actually redefine a new playbook on how to build startups in the rest of the world. And, and that was the genesis of the idea and, and why I wrote it. No, great, great. And why why did you end up getting this interest in merger markets? I know you wrote about, uh, you, you mentioned a few of startups in Brazil and wrote about them on your Medium. So how how did you end up having this interest in merger markets? You know, this has been, this has been the focus of my entire career um, at the intersection of innovation, uh, question of economic developments, and pretty heavy in, in emerging markets. When I was in uh, undergrad, I thought I was going to do a PhD in developmental economics. And I ended up getting the advice of saying, hey, why don't you go and get some uh, business experience first before going into academia? And uh, ended up on, I'm Canadian, I ended up on the Canadian version of Wall Street doing uh, uh, M&A investment banking and fell in love with the tool of finance, was not in love with selling big Canadian insurance companies, uh, but that ended up getting me interested uh, in, in finance, ended up doing my MBA. And this was at the time that Mohammed Yunus had just won the Nobel Peace Prize around uh, microfinance and impact investing was on the rise in, in emerging markets. And, and that's what really galvanized my interest in uh, venture capital for emerging markets, for questions, you know, I, I work at a fund that's not a quote unquote impact fund, but I, I would consider myself a closet impact investor. Like the, the stuff that I'm focusing on um, is, is deeply rooted on solving big mass market impactful questions. Um, and it's, it's a big, big, uh, big part of what I'm, what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where people can find your book? Is it available on Amazon? Um, yeah, so Out Innovate is available anywhere where books are sold. Uh, it's available on on uh, on Amazon. But you know, given given the pandemic and the crazy times we're in, I'd encourage you to consider uh, buying it from your local bookstore. And if you want to follow me, I also run a newsletter on trends and yes. in global innovation called Ninety Nine Percent Tech. You can subscribe at my newsletter uh, at my website alexlazaro.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. And then and, and follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. And uh, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun and uh, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time. It was great to talk about innovation and emerging markets.